We're live with the 2020 Experience Podcast. Thank you guys for joining us. If you would like to watch for full effect, you can follow us on YouTube at 2020 Fitness. Enjoy the show. Anthony, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Thank you. And um, and you know the the headline reads F sixteen pilot, super impressive, you know military career. Uh, but there's there's a little bit more to the story than that, which I want to get to um, eventually. But I'm I want to dig into why why did you want to become an F sixteen pilot? Um, yeah, well, actually, my original plan was never to be a pilot, uh, to be 100% honest. I was always afraid of heights. Really? So, yeah, I never liked looking over the edge of tall buildings. I still don't. I mean, I will do it, but, like, it's like, uh, I'm going to just hold on to the guardrail just a little tighter. Yeah. Um, but uh, basically, I decided I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy when I was relatively young. How old? Uh, I'd say I was about 12. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> all right, yeah, young is relatively young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, uh, that's when I actually was sure of it. I think before then I knew I wanted to be in the military, but my uh, sister had a tournament at the Air Force Academy, so uh, went up there, saw it, loved it, and decided that that's where I wanted to go. Um, was able to get in. Uh, basically, was supposed to play football for them, but lost too much weight in the basic training, lost about 40 pounds, so they wow. decided that I was undersized before, and now I'm just skinny little kid trying to run around and play college football so that didn't work out for me but I still got to stay at the academy uh, went through four years there and at the end of it I graduated and was uh, made into a developmental engineer for the Air Force and got sent out and I just by being extremely lucky I got sent to the test pilot school and they made me into a flight test engineer so <clears throat> I actually got to start flying in the back seats of F-16s, and uh, you know the first time I actually explain the back seat. So most uh, F-16s only have a single seat, but they're about 10% of them come with two seats, and they use those for training and test missions. And so the test pilot school is obviously doing test stuff, so they had all dual seat F-16s. And so at one point they kind of offered for me to go and take a flight. And I was like, no thanks, you know, not my thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they were like, everyone else is gone, you're going. And I didn't want to back out in front of a whole group of people. So I was like, all right, uh, got to fly in it. Was holding onto the guardrails the whole time. My eyes were probably closed about <laughs> half the time, just yeah. wanting it to end. But uh, when I landed and got down uh, and kissed the ground after I got out, I realized I had an absolute blast. And it was totally changed my life. So. Wow. So you went from basically zero to a hundred real quick. Yes. In the way that you wanted to even. So you're just you're just there doing engineering stuff. Correct. And so that wasn't even planned. That was just. Did you get to pick your duty station when you went there? Or did they did they place you? Because I know we kind of got to pick when I was in the Navy. Um, yeah, we got to put a preference down, and so uh, I think yeah. I got my fourth preference. Uh, oh, nice. So uh, you know, really was just by chance. I was yeah. not trying to engineer it or anything, but uh, got out there, and after that, I was able to fight for the position I wanted, which allowed me to fly more, which allowed me to apply for pilot training. So. How, how many times did you have to do, like, did you have to have a certain requirement of stuff before you could even try out for the pilot stuff? Yeah, you had to do, like, a bunch of tests, and, like, uh, I mean, they do a whole battery of tests. and uh, Physical often, tests? Yeah, sorry. Uh, well, all kinds of tests, actually. So, like, you know, physical testing, uh, you know, there's mental testing and uh, just reaction-type testing, a lot of reaction stuff. They want to see if you you know, have the ability. Uh, to fly at high speeds and whatnot. So, so I want to ask. That's one of the questions I want to ask: is how many people apply, and then how many? So I know it's, uh, X number apply, X number get in. How many end up actually flying the airplane? Um, 
So um, I went through a particular uh, you know way, path to get to it, which was the Air National Guard. So it's a little different than uh, you know people normally going into the Air Force. But uh, I think they said something like they had a thousand people uh, try to apply for the uh, program. And a uh, hundred people actually got their packets together and got all the requirements and uh, got yeah, yeah. you know all their uh, stuff checked off. And but all those are like pretty highly qualified people. And then I was one of ten who was selected to interview, and one of two who uh, was selected to go to pilot training. Oh so, my gosh! So okay. yeah, two out of a thousand. That's betting pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean I had to fly from LA to DC to uh, do the interview, so it was like a pretty big deal. So I felt immensely lucky uh, because a lot of times you have to try out 10 times before you make it and I made it on my first try so so then what um, after that, I, uh, you know, actually left the active duty Air Force and joined the active duty guard, basically. It was, uh, you know, small change, uh, really, as far as I was concerned, but just uh, flopped from one side to the other and uh, started pilot training. And I went down to Shepard Air Force Base in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, and uh, basically spent two years there, counting some time, going to some other places for training, and then another year in Phoenix, actually learning the F-16, so. That is wicked awesome. So did you ever lose, so you said you still have your fear of heights a little bit. Yeah, but, I mean, I it, I can overcome it, but strangely enough that whenever I'm in a plane, I feel like I'm actually solidly in the plane. Well, and, and, you, so, probably, and you have control. Yes. Yeah, so you're fully in control. Absolutely, yeah. and that makes a huge difference. Uh, I think a lot of people are would feel better about flying if they just go up in a small airplane sometime and control the plane and see how it works. So. Yeah. Okay. How many hours Make do you have? Make a note. <laughs> Let's go do it. Yeah. How many yeah. hours do you have flying? I have about 450, 500 hours of jet time. So. Of jet time? Yeah. Nice. Um, and uh, I really need to, I've been wanting to get back into flying. But I was going to say, do you get, ever get in a small plane again or get into a Cessna or go get your pilot, like, because you probably don't have to get your, you already have your pilot's license. Then. Yeah, I have all my, my pilot license. I just need to kind of refresh and renew all of the different qualifications I need. And honestly, it's going to be different because I really don't have any experience flying in the civilian world. So, yeah. uh, you know, propeller airplanes are not much different, but there's enough different that you want to take a little time to go check out. And I have an instructor <laughs> yeah. work with you for a while. No, it's going on a little bit slower. What's the difference between the, the, the your, you know, the highly qualified candidates that, that apply, what's the difference between somebody who makes it and somebody who doesn't? Um, and, and even in flight school, because I know not everybody makes it through flight school. Yeah, uh, there's a fairly high attrition rate in uh, flight school as well. Uh, I, I think a lot of it, I mean, some of it is just purely skill. Like I actually, for the longest time, was at the bottom of my class in uh, you know pilot training skills, but I was able to work my way up to towards the end. I was pretty good. So flying skills is one, but to even get selected, a lot of times uh, people are either good pilots or. Uh, good military members or uh, you know maybe a good leader but they're not all everything and so I don't think I was outstanding in any of them but the fact that I kind of had several of the things and had already been a military member that they kind of decided all right this is our best bet and uh, sometimes they're really looking more for leaders than they are for pilots but most people in the Air Force who become leaders are pilots or at least at the higher ranks yeah so um, I find it interesting like when you say like a thousand people apply and only like a hundred people 
people actually have their whole packet to get it together. And yeah. I remember like, you know, trying to apply for different things and you'd, you'd go and you'd get something, but because out of 20 people, you're the only person that actually provided all the stuff that like you checked all the box, like all the check boxes. Yeah. Like some of that is just that simple. That's part of the weed out. They yeah. want to make sure that you're, that you're one of those guys that can hit every box. Yeah. And a, a lot of those people, they actually got everything done they needed to, but they couldn't get their medical qualify. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do they call flying class one yeah. uh, signed off or they had other like uh, issues going on. So a lot of people like, you know, actually did turn in a full packet, but they looked at them and says, well, we're going to have to get you a bunch of medical waivers even to get you in the program. So yeah. we're not even going to look at it. Yeah. yeah. So, so for all the little boys out there, and, and I think, Jer- I, I know I'm one, you might be another one, Jeremy, what's it like flying an F-16? Um, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's basically like uh, you get in it and it feels like you're more strapping on like a suit of armor than it is like getting <laughs> into in something. Plane. Yeah. Because, I mean, it is a small, small airplane. Like, I had to bring in my shoulders. You're not, you're not a small person. I'm not the skinniest guy, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. You've got broad shoulders. Yeah, and, like, every time, if I forgot to, I'd have, you know, you'd carry some pins in your uh, uh, arm pockets that you could grab while you're flying. And if I didn't do that, the canopy would come down and rip them off. So. Oh, you'd have to take the pens off? Or just kind of hold my stuff. shoulders in. Oh, really? And, and turn my, uh, you know, shoulders just a little bit. So the canopy is the glass shield. Or yep. The, yeah. The, the big glass shield that, uh, you know, you see out of, so... It is very small, and like your legs are basically in tubes. Uh, really? Yeah. So you have very, very you can't little. Can't touch each other. Nope. Uh, you got a whole. Uh, you actually got some of your instruments between your legs, and okay. as well as your ejection seat handle. So uh, it is uh, very tight. So uh, yeah, it really feels like you're almost like one of those mech warriors that you see in oh, movies yeah, yeah. and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it is awesome because once you actually take off and fly, I mean, if you ever like been in a fast car, you feel that. Uh, pressure push you back and when you get a takeoff in an F-16 it uh, it starts and just keeps on coming until you're like you know 400 500 miles per hour and then you can just pull up and basically the laws of physics don't have to exist for a little bit of time so uh, you know you can just go shooting straight up in the sky for like a minute um, or at least it feels like you can it. go straight up for a minute uh, not really a minute but like a good long time like uh, 20 30 <laughs> seconds and you'll go from being on the ground to being at like 30 40,000 feet if you get an unrestricted climb which when I was out at Edwards was part the coolest stuff I got to do because they had this um, an immense amount of airspace that basically all the rules didn't have to apply. So if you wanted to go supersonic, there's huge areas that you go supersonic in where typically they try to make. We're talking that. hundreds of miles, or how much? How much is a um, lot of space in Air Force terms? I think it's like. Uh, the airspace is at least 100 miles long and maybe close to 100 miles uh, tall. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's huge amounts of space. So uh, you could be flying supersonic for 15 minutes and still be in the airspace. So Really? Uh, yeah. Is that the fastest you've ever flown? What's the fastest you ever flown? I, we got to touch Mach 2 once. So we really? uh, yeah, had a clean F-16 and a power full afterburner dive. We got to what hit. is a clean F-16? Um, so if you ever see pictures of them, uh, like a lot of times there's just all these bombs and fuel oh, tanks gotcha, and gotcha. missiles. Just empty wings. Yeah, so empty wings. So, and you know, super aerodynamic as far as uh, the F-16 goes. Because most of the time when we take off, especially if we're in places like the you know war zone, you're like carrying tons and tons of stuff. And so you struggle to get airborne and you have to refuel constantly because you're just burning so much gas carrying all this stuff. Uh, so Mid-air refueling? Yes. 
<laughs> How so is you've, that? Done that? you've done that before? Yes, I have, which is lucky because my little brother and sister-in-law are both uh, tanker pilots. So. Oh, really? Yeah, they, uh, yeah, they uh, both, I wanted them to be fighter pilots, but they wanted to do a little bit lower pace life. So they, <laughs> they both are tanker pilots down in Wichita. So. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah they, so did you ever feel from them? Nope. Unfortunately, I was uh, done flying by the time they got to the tankers. Stupid, Stupid question. Another one here for you. Why not just land quick, fuel up, and then get back in the air? Is it, fat, is it easier for the, the tanker to come out to you? Um, well, it, yeah, the tanker, first of all, has just like so much more gas. Like, so if you were to uh, refuel, you'd just have to go find someplace nearby when you're over in any territory, obviously. You it's, just, not happening. it's not happening. And uh, you burn most of your fuel, like getting started, taking off, yeah. getting high. But once you're up high, uh, you know, jet aircraft are actually pretty efficient. So you can get refueled, and while you might have burned all your gas in like a half hour getting up in airborne, you can be airborne then for two more hours on oh, the same gotcha. amount of gas. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, it's a lot more efficient as far as for the fighter airplanes. It's yeah. Obviously, you have a huge jet acting as a gas station. So, What about the pilot? How long can the pilot last in the airplane? Um, I mean, they've really pushed it at times. I mean, I've heard of like 12-hour missions. Uh, wow. And especially when you like, you know, you can't get up out of your seat. You are literally stuck can't in it. Can't go to the bathroom. Can't go to the bathroom. So what yeah. do you do on a 12-hour mission when you have? You will go to the bathroom, won't you? Uh, you do, and uh, they have uh, all sorts of things, from diapers to like little bags that uh, have like gel that uh, will uh, absorb. yeah absorb all the liquid. So, and then you know sometimes there's just horror stories about uh, guys having to go back out and clean the jet after. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there's uh, luckily that never happened to me. So it's not all just like Top Gun. No, there's there's a ugly underside to being a fighter pilot, including you know not being able to go to the bathroom when you need to. What about so. Drink, uh, what about liquids? Do you have anything to drink? Yeah, I mean, it basically, it, we would stuff stuff down our flight suit. There was a couple little like places where we could shove a bottle of water or something. But I mean, for the most part, whenever I was flying, I was so busy that I would just you know try to be hydrated before I got went because uh, by the time I was done, you know, I never had a good stretch of time where I could like stop, you know, take out stuff, take a drink, take a bite to eat. No, you have a, you have a. Are you breathing oxygen? Uh, yeah, you have a uh, basically a pressure uh, face mask that uh, when it becomes under G's, it actually starts shoving air down your uh, throat so that you don't pass out under high G's. So that's uh, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the what would you say is your craziest? What's your craziest experience flying? Oh. Man, there. I think uh, when, and I never went to go see any combat or action. Like I was, uh, uh, you know, slated to go before I found out I was sick. And um, but uh, I think the coolest stuff I got to do was we got to do like large scale engagements where we're like, you know, a bunch of us. Uh, you know, they'll get eight. 10, 12 F-16s, and then a bunch of adversaries uh, to fight against us, and tankers, and AWACS aircraft, or big flying radars is what AWACS are. Um, and so like a real life video game, basically. Yeah, and then you do it at <laughs> night under night vision goggles. Oh. Um, and so like uh, there was like a while where I got to go and shoot down one of the aggressors uh, after I had kind of like go and save the flight commander. Yeah. Um, you know, under like all night VGs and not able to communicate on the radar. 
radar or the radio. And so it was just like surreal. And you'd look up under night vision goggles and you'd see every star in the universe. Night vision is crazy. It is. Yeah, especially at like 30, 40,000 feet because there's like that. nothing above you. And like yeah. even if you with your naked eyes, you can see so many stars and whatnot. And you turn on the NVGs and it's almost like a, you know. Blanket. Yeah, a blanket. Like stars every millimeter of the sky. So it's really, really cool. But <laughs> that's that crazy. Yeah. So then you talked about you. So how long did you fly before you figured out you were sick? Um, or what? how did that even come to So, yeah, that was a. I had many clues that I was sick in retrospect, but I, I don't think anyone was going to put them together um, except maybe the doctors running tests. But uh, one mission was at the very end of my training. I was, uh, in fact, my very last flight. I actually went out with uh, the squadron commander, and we were doing dogfighting, just kind of brush up you my skills. You were not together. He was flying in another plane, and you were flying in yours? Yep. Okay. So we each had, you know, I was just by myself. He was by himself, and we were doing setups to practice basic dogfighting, uh, you know, a skill that we still work on a lot. And, uh, you know, uh, started going it, and uh, it was my turn to be the attacker, so I went in, was going to go for the kill, and when I put on a lot of Gs to try to, you know, chase him down. What What does the kill mean? Are you shooting lasers at each other? Or uh, what are you shooting? The radar basically is telling us, okay, can you shoot a missile? Um, and, like, you know, in real life, uh, we would have the master arm switch and a real missile on the rail, and we would just shoot it. So it's basically our radar telling us, will our gun hit the target or will the missile hit a, a target or have a good chance at it? Gotcha. Um, and so there's a bunch of rules that we do. Uh, but anyways, it's just a simulated, but uh, yeah. you know, we are going in for a fight. And it's pretty realistic as far as how uh, our systems work. So very similar. Not quite running around with squirt guns or anything. <laughs> no, but right. <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, we are going to go uh, do this. And when I went in for the kill, you know, it was about at the speed of sound, and um, pulled back, and so there's a whole lot of G-forces going on, and the F-16 could handle up to nine Gs, which is about the highest that the U.S. fighters can handle, and uh, in fact, any fighter. How, how do we conceptualize that? I don't, I have um, no way to... Yeah, what it, it, so a G is a force of gravity, so we're all sitting here at one G, so at two Gs, if you're 200 pounds, you now weigh 400 pounds, oh, wow. and so at nine, you're, I weighed about 2,000 pounds, so trying to pick up my arm was about two, three hundred pounds. Um, arm yeah. weight. Oh, so that's a good way to think of it. So, so at nine Gs, your arm weighs two to three hundred pounds. Yeah. And so, like, even, like, doing something simple, like switching from one radio to the next under Gs is almost impossible. You basically always have to lay off them, make the change, then get back on the Gs. Uh, nuts. Yeah. And so, and you'll see, uh, it's kind of funny because the one thing that helps you keep consciousness is, like, high blood pressure. And so you see a lot of pilots who, like, chain smoke and drink coffee trying to keep their blood pressure up. Seriously. Yeah, the only people in the world <laughs> okay. doing that. But, uh, yeah. Not yeah. this podcast, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just they are very stressed individuals anyways and yeah. so uh, but yeah all that stuff tries to keep the blood up in your head and um, in this particular uh, time when I went in I actually um, uh, you know started to like lose my vision a lot and uh, like uh, what I didn't know at the time was that there is a big tumor probably I don't know I guess at that time maybe the size of a grapefruit right next to my heart and so that oh, right next to your heart yeah so that my heart was trying to pump blood up but 
at the same time had this huge amount of space or huge tumor pressing against it. So uh, uh, at a certain point, I kind of woke up from a nap to only realize that I was in a jet, had no like immediate knowledge of what had just happened. And the jet was in like full afterburner, like slicing towards the ground. So uh, really? yeah, so luckily- You caught it in time. <laughs> Spoiler alert, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I uh, caught it, but like, it, you know, honestly, I probably should have been a lot more scared than what I was. But yeah, I was like starting to slice towards some Arizona mountains uh, just to the northwest of uh, Arizona. So, you know, was my the radio going crazy? Like, hey, hey, you know, you're. Yeah, and I don't think it was as bad as it could have been because since I was the attacker, he couldn't really see me. And so he just kind of lost track of me. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, like, started calling out, trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and then I realized something had happened. Really wasn't sure what because yeah. when I woke up, I honestly had no idea where I was. And it was only realized I realized I had something in each of my hands, which turned out to be the throttle and the stick. So, uh, and I was like, what is going on? And luckily, I like as I slowly regained my vision, I pointed my aircraft away from the ground. And um, after a couple minutes, I was able to uh, think clearly enough that, you know, declared an emergency, went back, landed. And uh, they did some tests, but unfortunately... You, they okay, so you declared an emergency, said yep. there was something... Yep. Uh, and so they... Uh, did some tests when I got done, some blood tests, which would later become important. Uh, but they said, okay, you're fine. You just passed out under G's. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, and so I went on to my next uh, unit um, and, like, got spun Week, up. Weeks later, days later? Months later. Months so later. in the meantime, I went through survival training, some other stuff. And the only thing that I kind of found different at that time was I was losing weight really easy. And it used to always, you know, I had to work out all the time just to stay relatively in shape. Yeah. So I thought, oh, maybe this is just me growing up and weight loss becomes like, easy. This is sweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to keep, I want to, I don't want to interrupt too much, but tell me about survival training. Uh, survival training was miserable, um, but we can is talk this, about if it. If your aircraft gets shot down, how yes, do you, how absolutely. You I got to go through it twice, more of a kind of a small version at the academy. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, which I think at the time at least counted for your survival uh, prereq, but only if you did it like immediately afterwards. So because I became an engineer first, I got the great. Uh, We're back about sorry for the interruption. There, we're back talking about survival training and how you got to do it for fun. I don't, you know, it was going to end. Yes. Imagine the psychology of, so you're talking about like John McCain, like guys who have actually been through it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, simple fact of the matter is like the three days that, uh, you know, that you might have spent in there. I don't even remember how long it is because you don't it's have the POW camp. POW camps. Yeah. Because you uh, time, no clock. Yeah, no clock. And a lot of times you're just out there. You have no reference. You can't see the sun. And it really, you know, tries to start to mess with you. And like they teach you skills. And if you use them, they're absolutely but like you know just things like will to survive and like you know keeping what's important uh, in mind to you and just kind of realizing that this is something that is crazy uh, but don't let that uh, get to you and affect the way that you think so um, but yeah just every day like look for tiny little victories and uh, so what would be an example of a victory or something that they want you to focus on um, like uh, basically if you could do anything that like would maybe uh, 
irritate your guards, if that's the kind of thing. Like, if you don't think they're going to, like, come beat you up, that you can do just enough to irritate them, but not enough that they are going to, you know, come out and beat you or something. Those are the kinds of things that you're like, all right, well, this is, like, literally a little, you know, game, game of war that you're playing with them. And, uh, you know, maybe it's more like communicating with your cellmates who uh, or cell neighbors, I should say, um, and, like, you know, passing information, finding things like that. Uh, but uh, anything that you can do like that is really small stuff and I think that had helped me a lot uh, as time went on just finding like tiny victories when uh, you know everything was going wrong so. so so speaking of which you go through survival school we'll skip a couple steps ahead how do you use what you learn in survival school with with the mass that you, that you eventually found in your chest so how, how did you eventually find out that something was wrong um, as, as time went on there was just more and more things that I knew wasn't going right and um, my little sister at the time had actually had just gone through a cancer diagnosis too. So uh, she wasn't, uh, it was a completely different type of cancer. So it ended up just being immensely bad luck that uh, we both had issues. Um, but um, uh, I, so I wasn't marrying her issues or anything, but there's a lot of really weird issues like lymph nodes that would like blow up. I was itchy on my legs all the time. And then I started to have a little lump on my chest that was between my ribs that kept slowly getting bigger. So I went to see the Air Force doctors a couple times and they didn't really think much of anything. Really? Yeah, and uh, like, you know, gave me some Benadryl. Well, he's a fighter pilot. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you've been through plenty of tests before, right? Mm -hmm. And they never found anything. Nope. But, all right, go ahead, keep on going. Uh, so eventually, they uh, the sequester happened where they shut down the government, um, you know, due to Congress's standoff. Yeah. And so, uh, because of that uh, and the type of uh, the way the guards funded, I actually went back home and was like, all right, I'm going to spend a couple weeks with my family because I can't fly, I can't do anything here. And uh, so I was spending some time with my family, and I decided, okay, this stuff is bothering me enough. I'm just going to go see a doctor. Went to see a doctor, and like he immediately saw me, heard my symptoms, and like told me go to see a uh, uh, chest specialist, I think. And, yeah. uh, and, but he, like, you know, wrote some notes for me to take to them, and I uh, read them, and I saw that, oh, okay, it's a, you know, that the differential diagnosis was lymphoma. So I uh, went to see a doctor, and uh, to kind of have just showed kind of the humor that I try to take for it. The doctor came in after he did some more tests with me and said, okay, yeah, you have like small cell diffuse uh, sarcoma or lymphoma, something like that. Um, I don't remember exactly what my initial diagnosis was, but I was like, oh, thank God, doctor. I thought you were going to tell me I had cancer. Um, <laughs> and I understood exactly what I had, but I was just kind of just well, being smart. What was her reaction? Uh, he didn't have enough time. I think he just had shock, and then I was like, no, no, I'm just joking. Um, I know this is serious, and I shouldn't be joking about it, but I was. So. Yeah. Um, that was your little victory. Yeah, yeah that was my little victory. Yeah. And then after that, I just, uh, you know, every day that I went through stuff, uh, like, you know, I was like, man, this isn't so bad. I used to be stressed out all the time, but now I just have to go to hospitals every once in a while for like a couple hours, and then the rest of the day I'm off and free. So I was like, this is like a vacation because yeah. uh, I don't have to do stuff. After like 
five, six, seven years of like being busy every day, you know, got 600 things that I need to do and only time to do a half of them. So, yeah, uh, yeah I just kind of like looked on the bright side and it was, honestly, it helped the fact that my sister was sick at the time too, because I was like, all right, no, like, you know, I got to show her that, you know, you can be strong and go through all this. And so uh, like small stuff like that just added up and just try to enjoy the small things that I did get to do, spend extra time with my family and whatnot. Yeah, so. oh, for sure. But so did they immediately say, so you obviously told the military, yep. hey, and then what did they say? They uh, they more or less said prove it. Um, and Prove that you have yeah. Really? Yeah, because... Uh, the, First you're, of all, you're an asset at this point. I, yeah. A very expensive yes, asset. Uh, I think so, but I think um, the bureaucracy just kind of got in the way, and so it wasn't like uh, my commander was like not believing me, but uh, more or less uh, the fact that okay, well, when I went home when sequester happened, I wasn't on orders, and I had some supplemental insurance, but uh, like what would have happened is the Air Force would be responsible for the cancer since it happened under their uh, yeah. under the watch when I was on them and you know I'd have to get paid and they'd have to pay take care of all my treatment and so it took a good four months before they looked at it in fact went back to the blood test that I had when I passed out in the jet um, and found okay like this has all the hallmarkers of uh, you know low or high white blood seg yeah. uh, count and whatnot now so. would if in this probably we're not uh, you know a question where it's like can't do anything about it anyways but if they would have caught it right then and there would you still be flying you think or no um say you couldn't fly or what how'd that work it it's a little hard to tell because it turns out that i had actually a pretty rare cancer so there's like hodgkins and non-hodgkins and i had a weird mix that none of the cancer uh strategies are really set up to deal with so um you know i had to go through a lot more chemo and radiation than most people did and you know eventually had to get a bone marrow transplant so once i got the bone marrow transplant i pretty sure that that would have eliminated me i don't know there's a chance that it wanted of uh but um, by that time i was so sick and had some other issues come up from treatment that I knew there wasn't a realistic chance of me going back. Uh, but if they had caught it early enough, I think there's probably a good chance I could have just gone through treatment for a year or so and then gotten back in it. But yeah. uh, by the time that it had gone so far that, yeah, it probably was unlikely that it would have happened. So. Wow. So you basically had to prove to your commander and stuff that you had cancer, even though you knew it. And yeah. Everyone else knew it. So you proved it. And then did they just, did you get, did they medically discharge you did they did you just yeah and then they like I mean they kind of looked at it and saw that they had made mistakes and so they did the right thing and just medically retired me so had all my medical stuff paid for so um, uh, and that and then they ended up you know doing everything they needed to just for four months or so yeah they were just like uh, maybe maybe we can make you pay for this yeah. so uh, but yeah uh, so now I'm just a 33 year old retired uh, military member but uh, I mean that's pretty cool yeah uh, <laughs> so about how long did you have so how long did cancer last like how long did what was the time span of that like how long was the treatments and everything like that and did they go in for surgery just take out the mass right away and yeah so uh, I had basically uh, a diagnosis in August I believe and then through the end of the year they 
thought it was just a more or less a simple run-of-the-mill cancer and you know I went through a very heavy but relatively common uh, chemo treatment and they said oh this almost always works very high and so when they went to test me again the mass had only shrunk a little bit mm -hmm. and that's kind of things when they figured out they're not uh, dealing with a, a normal uh, cancer and so they had to go back and then after that I got uh, a large biopsy where they uh, did I think the day after Christmas they did a bunch of uh, lathroscopic, you know, little incisions and just kind of dug out as much of the tumor as they could. It was really as a biopsy, but they were trying to remove as much mass as they could. And um, uh, then they kind of, after they did the test, had a little bit better idea and started hitting me again with radiation and more chemo. Um, they tried that for a while, it didn't work, and so they switched me and just said, okay, you're going to have to have a bone marrow transplant. And so um, they uh, had to have me get everyone in my family tested, and it turns out my sister was a really good match but even luckier for me it turned out that I didn't even need her uh, bone marrow because I had recovered enough by then that they were actually able to use my own bone marrow so they took my bone marrow out gave me a massive dose of chemo that pretty much killed everything in my body that was growing at the time including all the cancer cells yeah. and then gave me my bone marrow back so um, it, that is crazy yeah I mean the what they've done with science is unbelievable I'm sure 10 years ago I wouldn't be alive today but yeah. uh, if this happened 10 years earlier but um, yeah it's been awesome so you're two out of a thousand yeah getting out of school yeah what was what were your odds did they give you odds um, they they never gave me odds also because I think my uh, what I had kept shifting they thought it was this then they thought it was that then they were like oh it's just kind of something that's weird and in the middle um, and so uh, I know that at one point they uh, you know the diagnosis they gave me for my age group and my uh, type of cancer was like uh, five percent or ten percent five-year survival rate so it was like you know pretty grim grim right yeah what was your at so the only reason I'm asking is what's your attitude it was, did, did you maintain the humor of oh I thought you were gonna tell me you had I had cancer doc <laughs> I, I tried to <laughs> I tried to a lot and I uh, I hope I did honestly uh, my memory is pretty sketchy at this time uh, like you know one of the bad things that uh, I did uh, terrible things from uh, the whole cancer thing was like your memory takes a really big hit or at least yeah. for me personally it did so yeah like I know that for about a year I remember some bits and pieces but for the most part I remember trying to be upbeat and like take care of stuff but you know at a certain point you just start sleeping all the time yeah. when you're going through a lot of the treatment and uh, it honestly it, it was you know sleep was relief you know didn't have to stress about stuff and it helps your body so um, did a lot of that but uh, I always try to like just overall just kind of be upbeat and not get too um, down and I think uh, my family kind of helped me in all the right ways like sometimes they let me go out even though the doctors say I shouldn't go out just because I thought I needed to go see my friends and reconnect with people um, and keep up you know mental health and all that but like you know you have to go and go out with a mask and sometimes wear gloves and stuff like that just so any little germ could kill you so yeah that is nuts now, if you don't mind me asking how did, how did your sister end up doing uh, she has a, a very different type of cancer um, uh, and she's still like battling it but she's like you know doing pretty well and uh, it's one that's not going to be easily knocked out so yeah how long ago was this um, let's see that was 2013 I was diagnosed so oh, so you were in when what year did you join 
Uh, I went to the academy in 03 and graduated in 07. So. All right, yeah, because I was 08 to 12 as enlisted, but um, so we were in right around the yeah. exact same time. Oh, that's kind of cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Who knows? We might have even ran into each other one day. <laughs> yeah. You were 40,000 feet up. <laughs> I was around the helicopters, much slower flying people. <laughs> so, but. All right, so that's so that's still going on for her, but she's you know gradually taking it you know one step at a time. Are you able to help her more now that you're? Because you, how long have you been free and clear? Um, so April 2014 is when I had my bone marrow, and then after that, I never had another positive cancer test. There's a long time where they couldn't even tell, but um, so like once my bone marrow kind of got grown back, they started doing tests and everything's been clear. Like they say that, okay, yeah, there's a chance that something could come back one day um, because of your treatment, yeah. basically. But they think that the chances are uh, pretty good that I've actually just completely beaten the uh, original cancer that I had. And they, uh, so they consider me cured, I believe. For a little over four years. Yeah. That's awesome. Getting close to five, so yeah, I'm pretty That's cool. Pretty happy about that. So, wow. Do you ever, do you ever think about, you know, obviously you probably still think about flying. Like yeah. Getting back into a F-16 again or, like, I know that won't happen or that doesn't have the chances to happen, or, but do you, like, flying again ever or anything like that? Yeah, I definitely would love to fly. Uh, I mean, I plan on, like, one day once I have a little money saved up and maybe trying to either buy a little airplane or something. And I even, like, looked into going back because uh, there's a huge, huge shortage of fighter pilots. Really? Right now, yeah. It's, um, I think there's almost, like, one opening for every, like, pilot we do have. Yeah. And so even, I think, uh, Trump signed some executive order saying that, oh, you can, we can start clawing back pilots who are already retired. Um, but, do you think you'd do that? Uh, well, I mean, they signed the order, but so far the Air Force has repeatedly said that they have no plans on taking anybody back uh, unless they can, you know, that they want to come back and they can do something useful. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I don't think I can do anything useful for them at the moment. <laughs> I don't think they're going to let me fly no matter how desperate they get, but yeah. you never know. Because I know, like, now I, like, so I've been out, what, four or five years now. I don't think I could go back. I could, I could not go back and fix a helicopter like I used to. You just freak. Once, it, once you lose it. Yeah, when you're not in that like lifestyle, you lose a lot of, like people ask me questions about, oh, what, who is this? I have no freaking clue. I don't remember. Like, do you have you, have you lost any of that still? Oh, I've lost almost all of it. <laughs> uh, every once in a while, I kind of impress myself. I'll go see something and then remember how to do something like, yeah. uh, you know, how to do the start sequence in the jet or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, a good point. It probably is like riding a bicycle. You're going to remember a lot more than you think you do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they, I cannot recall on command much about uh, flying. Yeah. So. That's okay. Well, I listened to talk, you talk for 45 minutes now, and the, my, my biggest takeaway, I think, is just the little things. Yeah. It's just giving yourself that one, you know, wh whether it's you're going through some type of difficult training or, or survival school or cancer. I mean, that was kind of like the recurring theme as I'm just, just kind of listening from afar here is like find, finding that one thing that will whether it's, you know, your, your captor, if you can do something to irritate them or, or something to, you know, in, interject a little humor or, um, you know, 
being there for your family. Um, that that's kind of like the the theme of of you know of, of what I'm hearing. Would you would you agree of, of what's kind of got you through? Absolutely. All, like several di- difficult situations in different regards. Yeah, I definitely say it's uh, you know embracing a lot of the small victories, and then also um, I'm kind of really glad that I did do all the difficult stuff in my life. That you know it just kind of embracing struggle, and I you know did not embrace it at first uh, at all. But like the fact that I continuously struggled through life kind of gave me the you know willpower and whatnot to deal with harder things. So yeah, never be afraid of those. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I thank mean, you, John. I mean, <laughs> this is a, if anybody who else is listening, like that's great. But selfishly, this is just a, a blast for us to talk to you, and um, and thank you for spending time with us. Absolutely, we, we appreciate it. Enjoyed it.